1: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. If you've ever made a salad from tender greens picked up from the farmer's market, slurped an oyster cultivated at a regenerative farm, or sliced into a hearty loaf of rye bread, then raise a glass of California wine to James Beard, the Dean of American Cooking. For more than 35 years and in nearly two dozen cookbooks, Beard swept aside stuffy imported notions of epicurean haute cuisine on one hand and processed freezer food on the other to reveal the real flavors that were available to American cooks. Ham from Kentucky hogs, old world loaves from immigrant bakeries, obscure Washington apples. As John Birdsall writes in the first biography of the chef in more than 25 years, Beard remembered what food tasted like before supermarkets killed off local butchers and produce stands, and Beard spent his whole life trying to share that memory with the public. But while he gave home cooks permission to put pleasure and flavor at the center of the American table, Beard kept his own struggles with self-doubt and his sexual identity in the closet, while at the same time winking at his own persona as a gastronomic gigolo in his books. John Birdsall's biography, The Man Who Ate Too Much, explores the paradox of James Beard's life as a beloved national figure who kept so much of himself hidden. John Birdsall joins us from his home in Arizona to talk about James Beard, whom he calls a man on a lonely coast who told us we could find meaning and comfort by embracing pleasure. Thanks for talking to us, John.
1: Well, it's my pleasure, Stephanie. Thanks for Thanks for asking me.
2: Your book was a huge success, and then it made me extremely hungry reading about all of the delicious <laughs> things that James Beard ate or cooked or critiqued or wrote the recipes for. So my first question, uh, sincerely, how often did you interrupt your writing and research to like cook whatever you were reading about?
1: Well, I have to say that the the research was so uh, engrossing that I it was sort of like I was hardly raising my head to. Eat much less cook. <laughs> I mean, fortunately, my husband was taking care of that. But um, yeah, the food was such a part of the um, kind of story of James's life that you know it wasn't like I was like, oh my God, he's making shukrute garni. I have to I have to go try that recipe. You know, as someone who used to cook for a living, cooked in restaurants for about 17 years, I feel like the food part of me um, is in sort of almost a different part of my brain.
2: Yeah, it's so interesting because I think for James Beard, those parts were almost the same. Right. But I wonder what else drew you to James Beard, you know, of all of the food writers, um, even of all of the queer food writers. Why James Beard?
1: <laughs> well, I think, um, you know, I, I had the experience uh, of growing up in, you know, suburban San Francisco. Um, you know, I was a kid in the late 1960s and my parents were close friends with our neighbors who were a gay couple, um, Pat and Lou. Um, and they had kind of, in some ways, had a typical 20th century gay story. They had both grown up in the Midwest and they had come to the West Coast because of World War II. Um, they met there in San Francisco and decided that after the war, that they you know, sure as hell were not going back to the Midwest. Um, so they you know found a, found a house outside of San Francisco and lived essentially as a married couple. Um, and they were apart from my parents, they were pretty much outcasts in our neighborhood because of the way that they lived. Um, and the way that they cooked and ate and used food was something that made a huge impression on me as a kid. And later, when I sort of came out, you know, when I realized that I was queer, it was something that I could look back on as something, that seem to express a kind of um, inexpressible uh, queerness, a kind of inexpressible emotion um, you know in a world where you can't be completely authentic, where you have the most intense most robust expressions of who you are in private only like what it, what it, what is food in that private world? Um, you know how does how does food carry the um, the the sort of truth of of, of who you are, um, and so that idea had really intrigued me. I wrote that essay in Lucky Peach in 2013, um, called "America, Your Food Is So Gay," that started to explore that. And then James Beard seemed to me the one kind of historical figure in food um, who really kind of expressed that hard-to-express thing, which was, you know, how to you know, he basically taught America to cook, and at the same time, the food that he is best known for has this kind of subtle, um, kind of hidden, hidden provenance um, in this kind of silent, silent queer experience. So that that very thing really fascinated me. I wanted to see how it worked in his life. I wanted to see how. Um, how he was able to navigate a life um, and how the his queerness, though it's not something that he could express publicly, how it might um, manifest itself in the food that you know he was teaching mainstream America to cook.
2: Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question of how your identity is expressed in the food that you make or, or in whatever art that you make. And I think it's not an uncontroversial one. And it's one that a lot of people have a lot of different opinions on. Yeah. Um, so for you know for you writing about James Beard like how does it manifest do you think in James Beard's cooking and i guess in how how he defined cooking maybe to start this question off we should talk about how he defined cooking but you know
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i mean he certainly defined food as as taste and as pleasure um you know experience of pleasure and i think you know those are very common <laughs> notions now mm-hmm. but in 1940, when he wrote his first cookbook at the age of 37, um, those were still challenging ideas to most Americans. You know, there had been a gourmet food movement in the United States, you know, clearly from the 1930s. It, you know, precedes Beard's, you know, professional work. Um, MFK Fisher is like kind of the best known author who really argued that Americans should change the way that they eat, that they should eat for pleasure. With M.F.K. Fisher, it's, you know, specifically kind of allied to this broader sense of, you know, enjoyment of life and sensuality. In her early books, she wants you to know that she has a sex life and that, you know, her enjoyment of her body and enjoyment of sex is related to her enjoyment of food in some way. Beard comes along in the 1940s, and he kind of popularizes this idea. You know, MFK was writing for a much smaller, higher-end audience, and James Beard really kind of takes these notions of sensuality in food and that Americans should be eating for flavor and for enjoyment, um, and not because of you know nutrition or not even necessarily for budget. <laughs> all these all these things that really kind of dominate. Food coverage in popular magazines and cookbooks of the time. Um, James Beard wants to give it personality and voice, and he does it in a way that democratizes fine eating in America. Uh, tries to says that you know everyone can do it, even if you don't have much money. You know you can learn to cook; it's easy. And if you if you look around more, you know don't go to the supermarket. If you, you know go to the go to the fish market in in your neighborhood build a relationship with your fishmonger or your butcher or your produce person, you know, you'll be able to eat much better and it won't cost anymore. Um, you know, these are common ideas. You know, we go to the farmer's market now. Those didn't exist then. You know, Americans were being sold uh, really corporate, corporate food. You know, the kind of miracle of American food was agricultural and industrial. You know, you could get you know, tomatoes in January in these gleaming supermarkets. You could get apples that were huge and they all were the same shape and size. Um, they didn't taste very good, but that wasn't what the American food revolution was was interested in. And James Beard really tells people like, hold on, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, taste what you're eating, you know, enjoy it. And he he gets this notion, I mean in part he gets it from his from his mother who was a very careful uh, cook uh, in and around Portland, Oregon, but he gets it also as a young man who's trying to express himself, who's trying to express his queerness, who's trying to pursue sex and his own sexuality, um, finds that it's much easier to do that abroad. So goes to France um, where, you know, it's The mainstream culture of food is very, very different in the United States. It was all oriented toward uh, ingredients, um, toward shopping in street markets and, you know, spending more of your income on food and eating in a leisurely way that um, that is about celebration and enjoyment. And I See James's great achievement is kind of taking that notion uh, and not bringing it back to the United States as a as a French import that you know Americans should adopt. You know he's not writing mastering the art of French cooking. Um, he 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 really makes that notion American. He really sort of naturalizes it and says, in every region of the United States where you might happen to live, you can look around and you can find brilliant food. you know, you can find farmers who are kind of growing. Things near you that don't taste like things grown anywhere else, or you know, they might be raising smokehouse hams or making cheeses. If you, you know, even in the 1950s, um, if you if you look around, you can you can find extraordinary food where you are.
2: Yeah, that description of the ham that uh, James Beard's dad's family sends out <laughs> that he like. I'm like, oh my god, that I had to pause and get some. Fresh it was really <laughs>
1: difficult. <laughs> I, I was. I had to. You know, he. Throughout his career, you know, ham is like was like one of those like iconic foods for him, and it was like there there's so much sort of security in just having a huge smokehouse ham that he would kind of glaze and bake. It was one of his favorite things to serve at a party. It would just be an enormous ham on the bone that would get sliced occasionally that people could kind of nibble on or make sandwiches with. Um, and I mean, it 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 really is. You know, something like a traditional smokehouse ham is really a challenge to mainstream American food in the mid-20th century, which is about packaging, standardization, and convenience. Um, and so, you know, James was a kind of maverick and a rebel and a revolutionary, but in a very, in some ways, in, in a very unchallenging way.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think so much of that celebration and that pleasure of eating also comes in in like how he's writing not just for, like, the family cooking at home, but also for entertaining, which was such a big part of his life and how he, like, even came into food, you know, with hors Inc. ink, and that whole story. Can you talk about that? Because I had no idea that that was his entree, and it just explains so much, I think.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, he's he's a frustrated actor and opera singer, you know, throughout his, his kind of youth and in his early 30s, um, he's really tried hard to create a career on the stage, um, first as an actor, which doesn't really work. Then he tries to get a career in New York theater, um, you know, as a set decorator. I mean, he's not really able to make any headway there. So he kind of falls falls back on, on, on food as a default. Um, he's used to cooking for friends, um, especially the kind of um, community of people from Oregon who have moved to New York City. And, you know, nobody has much money, but James is able to cook some pretty amazing and delicious things, um, really mostly with imagination. Um, And he gets spotted um, by a kind of wealthy closeted man uh, who lives in this large apartment in Greenwich Village near Washington Square and he invites James to come live with him as sort of the manager of these very discreet gay cocktail parties that he throws and this is you know starting in like 1938. One of the things about the end of prohibition in America is that, you know, it's not like everybody went back to drinking in bars the way that they did before prohibition started. After prohibition, a lot of state liquor authorities devised really draconian rules about um, gay people drinking publicly in bars and really, you know, trying to stamp out any, um, you know, gay-friendly bars. And so a lot of New York's drinking life um, especially for affluent New Yorkers, goes private. Um, people have apartment cocktail parties. Um, so James becomes kind of the manager, sort of the the cook and the cocktail maker for this man's parties. It's really where he learns to throw parties. Um, later he meets a brother and sister, Bill and Irma Rohde, and they form this really new kind of hors d'oeuvre company, to create cocktail parties for kind of wealthy hostesses on the Upper East Side of New York. It's called order of ink. And, you know, instead of the sort of tired, stale canapes with caviar and, you know, canned French truffles, um, canned French pate, you know, James primarily really tries to do something distinctive, you know, things that he's learned um, in his past of throwing cocktail parties, you know, so he'll go to, you know, German bakeries in, you know, Yorkville on the east side and find whole grain breads, you know, instead of using like fluffy white bread for canapes, he'll use real bread. He'll use, you know, delicious cheeses and meats. Um, And they're quite successful. This hors d'oeuvre company is sort of quite successful, gets a lot of press. um, And it's James's sort of entree into a career in food in New York City. He kind of uses that experience to write his first book uh, in 1940, which is hors d'oeuvre and canapé. Kind of sc- screws over his partners <laughs> uh, in the catering company, doesn't mention them, doesn't mention that they helped come up with some of the recipes, sort of takes the credit and glory for it. But, um, you know, it really springboards his career in food, his authority on food and drink and entertaining.
2: Yeah, I want to ask more about how his writing develops, and I guess the context first that he is writing in, because his early cookbooks, um, you know, including Foul and Game Cookery, which you you know you like, you'd never expect something with a title like that to be like deeply revealing, <laughs> and yet <laughs> no. it kind of is. And I wonder, you know, you mentioned M.F.K. Fisher earlier. Um, And I think her writing is definitely a strong antecedent for his. But I wonder, you know, this is also post-Joy of Cooking. So, like, what is the strain of cookbook writing he's writing against and with in this era initially?
1: You know, it was a time when Americans had owned very few cookbooks. You know, it's not until much later, it's really not until the 1960s when people, you know, Americans might have, you know, multiple cookbooks or they might buy cookbooks, you know, for entertainment. Um, The cookbooks that are mainly published and that people keep on their, you know, small cookbook shelf in the kitchen are, you know, so-called kitchen Bibles. So books like Joy of Cooking, which are um, comprehensive in nature, they don't, you know, necessarily have authorial voice. <laughs> um, they're kind of practical collections of recipes. Everything that you might need to cook uh, in the course of a year uh, would be crammed between the pages of this book. This was considered practical, was considered good value. You know, many of these books, you know, some of the best-selling cookbooks um, in American history are not were not written by individual authors, but, you know, for instance, the Betty Crocker picture book, which was published in 1950 and, you know, remains the best-selling American cookbook. Of course, we know there was no, there was no Betty Crocker. It was written by the General Mills Corporation to sell you know, flour and baking mixes. Um, it was compiled by a group of recipe testers and editors working together. There's no voice there. And so James um, you know, partly inspired by MFK Fisher, certainly inspired by Alice B. Toklas. Um, In 1954, the Alice B. Toklas cookbook is, I mean, really, I mean, much more than MFK Fisher, it's really this narrative cookbook, this book that uses recipes to, you know, propel a narrative forward, not just be kind of additions to a memoir or an essay about food, um, but that really carry the drama of a, of a book. And so James is not a particularly talented writer, but he aspires to write um, a book with real narrative weight. And so, you know, as boring as foul and game cookery sounds, uh, you know, a book that was published in... 1943 he kind of inserts bits of memoir you know he talks about growing up in portland oregon and you know julette the family cook um you know who fed him um you know cold chicken jelly when, when he was you know a toddler and had malaria there's a kind of emotional weight behind some of these recipes that's something that it's sort of a niche in american cookbook publishing at the time american Publishers are experimenting with publishing books that have voice or that have narratives, but those books don't really sell. Um, And so James is trying to work in that genre. It's really not until 1949 when he writes uh, the Fireside Cookbook for Simon & Schuster that he really builds a reputation as a national authority on food in the United States. And what he has to give up, really, is so much of his individual voice. You know, his early books, I think, are not edited very well, um, (laughs) which is bad for the reader, but it's great for any fan of James Beard because it really preserves his writing voice. Um, His kind of sassy, campy, queer voice uh, is there, especially in Cook It Outdoors is nineteen forty one book, um, which is a funny place for it to exist, um, you know, especially because you know at the time, you know barbecue cookbooks, outdoor cookbooks, written by men, were supposed to be like manly, manly books. You know they're about men who knew how to, you know, build a brick barbecue in the backyard and cook steaks. You know, and James is sort of giving us sass. He's giving us voice. Um, he's sort of joking. You know, he's making sort of veiled jokes about <laughs> about sleeping with men and talking about friends, two girls who go camping who are, you know, queer women. Can't really say that they're queer, but it's, it's sort of just there beneath the text. So, you know, writing with real distinctive voice is rare in American cookbooks.
2: Yeah, I think the theatricality of his youth really comes through in that, in his voice. It doesn't really come through in his cooking, per se, you know, because it is really not like the modernist cuisine of its era, which is like truly theatrical cooking, you know?
1: <laughs> right, yeah, right. I mean, he's he's writing for home cooks. Um, he's writing practical books. He's not that interested in restaurant cooking. He's just looking for food that's delicious. He's not interested in some sort of snobbish restaurant experience. So he's frustrated not only with the American cookbook, but also that just the drift of kind of mainstream American food, American food writing at the time, which was really interested in high-end food, kind of elite foods. There were kind of simple, casual foods that you might eat at a diner casual restaurant, um, but those weren't considered serious restaurant food. And James very much wants to tear down the wall between those things, say that, you know, anything that's delicious, anything that's interesting is something that's worthy of attention if it's a hamburger than that is just as worthy of attention and just as worthy of care from the home cook.
2: And that very much feels like the moment that we're living in now. Right? You know, he did define American food, I don't know, like, he did but also it, it took a while to catch on you know like it's not like James Beard was like writing this in the 40s and the whole world sat down and was like yeah you're right we should just be elevating you know peasant yeah. food and like whatever tastes good like why didn't the rest of the world sort of like sit up and listen and how long did it take <laughs> for you know James Beard's ideas to really catch fire
1: yeah I mean you know you know certainly certainly American food was you know in the even in the 1950s, was really dominated by this idea of cuff class and and caste you know Americans didn't eat out at restaurants all that often um, but they did eat out in sort of you know lunch counters diners that kind of thing that was kind of the main you know people's main experience of food outside of the home and I think James was definitely unhappy with that kind of duality and you know he starts to write a syndicated newspaper column in the 1970s and he really he really uses this as a showcase for foods that he's found and that he's excited about you know physically um he has a lot of kind of health issues you know he was always large physically you know suffered from heart attacks and things that would sort of make it harder and harder for him to be mobile but he had friends who would sort of bring him foods or send him through the mail foods that they were excited about. Um, and he would write about them. And this is when, you know, suddenly in the 1970s, Americans, partly because of his influence, do become interested in American foods, do become interested in Kentucky bourbons and smokehouse hams and flour tortillas from Arizona. And there's this real flowering of american food at this time james beard is is really largely the architect of this a kind of i guess unfortunately i'd say at the same time american food really america's interest in food really shifts i mean james spent his career writing for home cooks writing about home cooking and kind of being interested in restaurants definitely but it wasn't his main focus and then suddenly in the 1970s definitely in the 1980s is kind of the rise of you know the quote-unquote, rock star chef. In American food media, the focus is no longer really primarily on home cooking, but it's on restaurant food. It's on what the latest, hottest chef is cooking. And it kind of eclipses James's influence. You know, he's, he's seen as, a, as an influencer, as a mentor to a younger generation of chefs like Alice Waters, um, Jonathan Waxman, this kind of younger generation of chefs who are really um, cooking locally, taking some of the things that he had been talking about in the 1950s um, and really putting them into action and taking them much farther. But it really does sort of eclipse him, you know, the the era of the kind of ultimate authority on food (laughs) is a very old fashioned figure. And, you know, suddenly restaurants and young chefs are like the sexy, hot thing in American food. So it's it it really marks like a coming of age in, of American food, but it's also sad because it kind of marks James's kind of decline.
2: But you know, he won in the end because now, <laughs> like, we're all into it. You know, there was the rise of the chef, but now we're all into <laughs> farmers' markets and right. and sourcing local. Yeah, no,
1: I mean, um, we as you know, maybe food media, food 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 cultures, kind of been able to kind of look beyond the kind of auteur chef and look at contributions of other people in the kitchen and even to to look beyond restaurants and to you know certainly broaden an understanding of american food you know james's understanding of american food is like eurocentric he's really not that interested even in the south so yeah, one of the great things that's, that's happened is we've expanded that notion. You know, he's always being asked, you know, like, oh, what is American food? What is, can, you, can you define American food? Of course he couldn't because in many ways it's nothing that can be defined. It would be sort of like, oh, you know, whatever Americans eat, that's what American food is. Um, you know, I, I, I think, um, you know, we've been able to just sort of <laughs> take that difficult notion and really look much further.
2: We have links in the show notes to John Birdsell's book, The Man Who Ate Too Much, as well as clips from James Beard's life and his short-lived TV show. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.
1: Hold up. What was that?